make the film that no one else wants to make. Be as brash as you can be and come up with a subject that no one would in their right mind think about making. And a, a film that just is so out there that it's singularly yours. Hi everyone and welcome to Making Ways. I'm your host Rob Goodman and I'm so excited to welcome you to the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. On today's show, we're joined by independent documentary filmmaker Scott Kirschenbaum. Scott is working on a new film called Of Woman Born and is a very intimate look at one woman's experience going through the labor and birth process. He also is the filmmaker behind the Alzheimer's documentary, You're Looking at Me Like I Live Here and I Don't, which aired nationally on Independent Lens the Emmy Award-winning program on PBS. Scott talks all about his path to pursuing an independent film career and the moment where he put aside the mainstream screenwriting he was doing to really dive all into more cause-oriented work. I'm really excited to have Scott on the show. It was a great conversation, and I think you guys are going to learn a lot. Before we get started, June is actually a busy month for Making Ways. If you are in the San Francisco area, check out sfdesignweek.org. We are going to be doing a live broadcast, a live recording of Making Ways. I'm so, so excited. So you guys can actually come down, be there in person. We're interviewing Eric from Friends of Type. Uh, he's a really acclaimed hand-lettering artist and incredible designer, and I'm just so excited. We're going down to our friends at Butcher Shop, one of the top agencies in San Francisco, and it's all for SF Design Week. So go to sfdesignweek.org. You can get a ticket for Making Ways, interviewing Eric from Friends of Type. I talk to you guys each week about our sponsor, General Assembly, and this week I have a little something different to tell you. I'll actually be teaching a class at General Assembly, and it's about podcasting. So I'll teach a workshop about launching a podcast, and if you're in the San Francisco area, just go to ga.co backslash sf, and you can look up my class for launching a successful podcast, and I'm so excited to do it. Okay, let's get started with the conversation with Scott. Enjoy the show. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, of course. It's great to have you here. And I want to talk about your career and what you're up to. But first, I thought we'd kick off and I could learn a little bit about Of Woman Born, your new documentary that you're working on, which is all about pregnancy and childbirth, but a really specific moment in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's about one woman's physical, emotional, and spiritual experience during labor. And I was looking all over the country to find the best subject. And it turns out uh, she lives in Greenville, South Carolina. I found a midwife there whose name is Emily Graham. And at first I reached out to her to see if she has any clients that she thought would be good subjects for the film. And it turns out she was interested in getting pregnant herself. And so... We've been on this journey for a number of years as I've been waiting for her to get pregnant. And um, finally, she gave birth on December 6th, 2016 to a beautiful young girl. That's awesome. And I saw a clip of the movie, and it's it's just the labor. That is the film, is just documenting the labor. What was it like for you to be in such an intimate space with another person during what is... Uh, 
one of the most, I guess, challenging and miraculous times in their lives? It was uh, tremendous and also quite pressure-free because our team had spent days on end preparing with Emily and just figuring out how to move through the space in a manner that would not disrupt her. I mean, obviously there were some concerns that we might do something wrong or that she might have difficulties during labor, but I went through a doula training program so that I could understand the language a bit better and the crew, I can't say enough positive things about them. They were really up for the task given that we started filming at about 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and this is a home birth in her house. This isn't at a hospital or anything like that. So you are uh, a gentleman, as uh, listeners can 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 hear. Um, and I'm really curious about what it's been like for for you to kind of dive into the, the birth uh, community and what made you want to approach this subject in the way that you did? I would say ignorance was a motivating factor. I just am around guys constantly who know much more about sex and porn and doodly stuff than they do around birth. I mean, there are not that many bros I know who are geeking out <laughs> about how much they love birth and labor. And my film partner, Gracie, who lives outside of Portland, she had two home births, and I had the great privilege of hearing her retell a birth story to me of her second labor, and it just was so stunning. From a screenwriter's perspective, I was overwhelmed because I could never imagine something being that meticulously organized and everyone moving through the space in such a fluid manner. And I'm someone who's very drawn to films that take place in one location, and this kind of seemed like the ultimate opportunity. So I was very drawn to the possibility and the challenge of it all. And how long have you been making documentaries? I probably have been going at it for about 10 years now. Um, I started in college. I did a documentary called Jumer, which was about Jewish humor in Jewish nursing homes. <laughs> so I did that junior year of college, and I traveled around the country with a friend of mine, Aaron, and we went to about 15 nursing homes, and I asked the residents about their relationship to humor in the context of the aging process and their own ailments. So that was really my first foray into documentaries, and I was 21 at the time. But I really picked things back up uh, when I moved to San Francisco uh, around age 27. And your last movie also follows a single subject, a woman, at a completely different stage in her life. Uh, I watched the film last night, and it's about a woman who is dealing with Alzheimer's. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about what made you approach the subject for that film and um, tell me a little bit about, I know it was featured on PBS and got a lot of attention. So just tell me about the process of making that film and um, the connection with the Alzheimer's community as well. I was doing a lot of screenwriting out of college and this concept of an unreliable narrator came up for me. And obviously someone who is suffering from dementia symptoms and ha or has Alzheimer's is a pretty clear, unreliable narrator because they cannot give the lucid telling of what their 
desiring from one minute to the next, and there's not really a linear progression that you follow when you're spending time with someone in a dementia unit. So that was a big draw for me, the, the challenge. You know, I really like hurdles with screenplays and you know, trying to come up with an overarching structure that people haven't encountered before. So with this film, I had initially, for the Alzheimer's film, I had initially written a screenplay, and I wrote that while doing some research at a Jewish nursing facility in the Bronx. And when I got out to the West Coast and was starting to sort of shop around the concept to nursing homes in the Bay Area, some of the recreation and therapeutic directors were like, hey, you're going to need to adjust this screenplay because this is not how our unit operates. It's a much more calm and sort of emotion, you know, sort of forward-thinking approach to how you can be empathic with people who have the disease. So I had to reframe things a great deal once I got out to the Bay Area, but it was definitely something that was this amazing challenge to me. How could I pull this off? That was the big question because so many people wanted me to involve doctors and family members, and I basically said, sorry, it's going to be just this woman's experience. And the movie, you're looking at me like I live here and I don't, it just follows her experience. And so how did you decide? Because as, as I was watching it, you know, I wondered about, a, how her family kind of signed off on this. Um, you know, we don't really get a view of what she was like before, though there are some kind of family photo moments and things like that. How did you decide not to put her story in kind of a greater context, but instead just focus on that, this moment in time? For a while, we were exploring the possibility of including family members and including other residents in the unit. Ultimately, we submitted a version of the film that was 80 minutes long to festivals, and then we trimmed it down to 53 minutes for the PBS broadcast. And we were very fortunate to have 19 of the 20 residents in the unit, 19 of their children or you know, power of attorney, sign off on letting us be there and film which is pretty unheard of. You know, it's not often that a filmmaker says, I want to spend 10 days in a unit and just trying to depict what's going on in there. And for me, Lee was the subject of the film, was just like such a gravitating personality. I felt for her in so many regards, and I liked the fact that she was in this liminal stage between being one of the residents, but also an outsider and a bully among the residents, but also kind of trying to liaise or spend time with the caregivers and the nurses and the orderlies that are there. And she also, you know, was quite chummy with me. You know, we spent the majority of the filmmaking process holding hands or arm in arm, kind of trying to be good buddies. You know, we were very, very close friends through it all. And she was very emotional every day when I'd leave the unit to go back home. There's a theme I see emerging where you not only are putting yourself into difficult situations to film, confronting difficult subject matter, but is it is it in order to create art that then will be difficult or challenging for an audience? And, and why is that important to you in your work? I don't know that I want to intentionally make things hard on an audience, but I do want audiences to sit 
in their seats and not flinch or feel that urge to leave because it's different than what they're used to. You know, I, we've spent so much time going to theaters and, you know, nowadays we can check our phones or, you know, tone, tone out or, you know, just like forget about what's going on if we're bored by that or we can turn off uh, Netflix if we want to. And I just would love the opportunity for audiences to say, you know, I'm somewhat uncomfortable and I'm going to stick with it because this is unusual and this is something that I can grow from experientially. I like that in my own everyday life. You know, I like to be faced with unique experiences and to sit with it, to be present with it and not to run away from the, you know, uncomfortable emotions. And I think that audiences nowadays are fed so many, you know, kind of routine screenplays and storylines, you know, the rom-coms of the world. And I just want to present something different. And some people might say they're more depressive or intense, but this is life you know, and we might as well make art that's challenging. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you approach editing in your work. Yeah, I work, I like to work with this, this editor that I mentioned, Stuart, and I love the fact that it's sort of like this, you know, dialectic between us, you know, we're going back and forth and we're trying to figure out what is the superstructure of the piece and I like that he's incredibly opinionated and I'm very opinionated. He had a graduate degree from Queens University in Belfast in experimental documentary filmmaking. So he knows his stuff as well. And I just like to sort of uh, pick apart a scene and figure out how to end scenes in unconventional ways. You know, I, I come from an improv comedy background. So I like this sort of yes and element that's at play. And also, once you have that zinger moment, cut and get out of that scene and move on to the next one. Um, so I do think improv plays a great factor there. And also, being confronted with plot elements that just do not work. You know, and trying to figure out how the hell am I going to make this work so that an audience will continue on watching the film. And this birth movie certainly pre presents a lot of these situations um, where some people might be uncomfortable and be kind of concerned for the well-being of the subject in the film. But I know what transpired during the labor and from the editing process, we're just trying to sort of like build this uphill trajectory that, you know, obviously the climactic moment of a birth film will be this woman giving birth. Hey guys, I want to tell you about our sponsor, General Assembly, but actually this week, I want you to hear about General Assembly from my friend Sarah Beth, who actually went through their program and changed her career. So let's hear from Sarah. General Assembly provided an accessible way to take courses while I was still working full-time. So I took a weekend course um, every Saturday for about 10 weeks, and I studied user experience design. Uh, we covered subjects from research to communicating flows through diagrams and other deliverables that would help communicate the user experience potential for software or app design. Cool. And what's your job now? Now I'm working at Lending Club as a product designer. Product design incorporates user experience design. It also has a layer of um, user 
interface design, in addition to service design and some other layers. I'm interested in taking a data science class next, actually. I think it would really help my work now as a product designer to really understand more deeply how the data is influencing our direction. So if you're like Sarah and you've been in that situation where you need to upgrade your skills and you're looking for a change, check out General Assembly. Use the offer code MAKINGWAYS at checkout and you'll get 15% off any workshop or class. So check it out. Let me know what you think. Let's get back to the show. Did you study filmmaking in college and when did you do improv? Yeah, so I graduated college in 2003 and I studied sort of interdisciplinary arts Um, and I was doing the improv comedy troupe there. I went to Yale and then I also did some sort of like slam poetry type projects and some hip hop musicals as well. Um, Just kind of dabbled in a lot of different art forms and gradually screenwriting and documentary filmmaking came to me as well and those were very you know inspiring and i found some great collaborators with that and what about when you were a kid were you the kid who was always kind of off filming and shooting things or were you just kind of generally into creative things or sports or mm-hmm. yeah how did you how did you get turned on to film i was doing a lot of performance work in high school and growing up i did a lot of speech and debate um i did a lot of creative writing I was a drummer as well. I never was called to film specifically because I thought for the most part that I wanted to be in front of the camera or be on the stage. Um, but I did have you know, a lot of opportunities growing up in Phoenix, Arizona to do all the different arts that I was drawn to. And you know, that kind of led me down this path where I was trying to figure out sort of like hybrid forms of, for projects. And what was your first job after college? I was doing, um, I did a commercial project from Microsoft. Um, I had a manager in New York who was representing me after my hip hop musicals, and he got me that gig. But I also did so many one-off jobs in New York City. Like I was teaching one kid how to play drums. I was teaching another kid poetry. I was substitute teaching. I was like an after-school um ice skating supervisor in Central Park. <laughs> I don't know. Just and I also went up to the Bronx and I was doing an artist in residence for, you know, an elementary school there where we did all sorts of like experimental uh creative writing exercises and that was pretty exciting too. And uh when did you start diving into screenwriting and spending more time? I guess were you spending time on that as well as the hip hop musicals? Yeah, I was working with a writing partner partner right out of school um, and we were working on a number of different screenplays he was still in school at the time and we would just send drafts back and forth and kind of brainstorming different ideas and we all along had this sense that we'd move to LA eventually it was just about matter of waiting for him to graduate Um, but as we were working together I also was doing performances in New York City and my hip-hop musical partner moved out to Seattle so I went out there as well and performed with him out that way too and were the scripts that you were writing what what were they like at the time 
who are about as different from <laughs> the projects I'm working on right now as you could ever imagine. I was doing a lot of 20-something dudes comedies, um, just kind of like ready-made rom-com type pieces, pretty absurdist, dark humor type pieces, you know, some sports kind of projects as well, just everything that we could come up with. But the main piece that we worked on that eventually never got sold was about a kind of like a spoof on Walmart called Family Value um, that we wrote in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places. What happened, I guess, to shift you from pursuing a screenwriting career? Also, I guess, were you still working on musicals then too? Mm To go all in on this very different path towards documentary filmmaking. Um, I'd say the biggest factor is that my music partner from these hip-hop musicals, he ended his life while I was in L.A. right around that time. And I just kind of made a decision for myself that from that point forward, I was going to only do projects that I felt called to that I needed to do. Uh, come hell or hell high water, I'm going to do them on my own terms, and they're going to be for causes that I'm absolutely adamant about working on. Um, so that was the biggest shift. It was deciding that I want to leave the LA path and pursue this more cause-driven filmmaking uh, angle. And obviously, being in San Francisco is a pretty ideal spot to explore that kind of career. And so did you move to San Francisco after LA? Yeah, directly after I came up to Big Sur for a weekend and then I fell for a girl in San Francisco at the time and I was immediately like, okay, makes sense to be in the Bay Area. And I immediately was drawn to you know all the different artistic collaborations that I could come up with and shooting a lot of short films here right away. And let's go back to the moment where your, um, your musical partner mm-hmm. passed away. What kind of changed inside of you and or what changed in your worldview that made you say, okay, I want to step back from the work I'm doing? Was it about addressing people with issues like he may have had issues? Mm-hmm. Was it just uh, realizing that life is short and mm-hmm. you wanted to reprioritize? I guess, what was the thought process during that time? And did you also consider career and mm-hmm. say, okay, this may be a more difficult path in certain ways, but life fulfillment wise, I still want to see this through. Well, he definitely struggled with mental health issues and I have myself as well. And I just think it was unfathomable to me that any like brother in the arts would go to that drastic measure to end things. Like to me, no matter how crummy things get, there's still some motivation deep down in my core that says like you can transcend this feeling by making quality art. And so it was shocking to no end to think that one of the best artists I've ever met wanted to end things right then and there and that it wasn't there was no outlet for him to continue on his path that he was, you know, he was still playing music and doing all sorts of other artistic projects. So that, that was the biggest, I guess, maybe it was me learning how adult depression and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder work for certain individuals. I just never 
maybe it was me being oblivious, but I never thought that someone would end things like that. Um, someone who that I who I was having consistent and regular artistic dialogue with, um, and so that's also why I'm able to say to friends nowadays, if you know anyone who's having that kind of challenge or experience, I would love to go for a walk with them. You know, I'd love to at least talk through what's going down in their head and in their heart, because. I'm, you know, I'm not a conventional non-profiteer, you know, like that's not my angle. I'm not trying to like, you know, champion a certain non-profit over all others, but I will say that there are, I, I'm very confident that I can talk someone into a healthier spot who's struggling with mental health issues. And so, and you've had those talks with people and gone on those walks? Oh, yeah. All hours of the night. Obviously, I'm not anybody's therapist. <laughs> I'm just saying I like to have that conversation. It's not uncomfortable for me. It's a very, um, you know, emotionally positive place for me to be in. And tell me about the project you did for Haiti, mm -hmm. um, because I've, uh, I've seen pieces of it, and it seems really wonderful and worthwhile. When did that happen? Yeah, so while I was in the middle of the Alzheimer's project, the earthquake in Haiti occurred, and I w remember vividly going to a party on the bay that night. You know, everyone's drinking and smoking out there, and I just, like, very randomly picked up a newspaper, and I saw statistics about how many people had died in Haiti and images of the earthquake and the wreckage. And I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing. I mean, I don't mean to say that I was completely desensitized, but I had no immediate response. And I couldn't understand why I had gone to this place in life where that was the case. Like, how can you just like not have this visceral, ugh, like this is the worst feeling imaginable. And so I immediately went home. And at the time, TED Talks was in the early stages of, you know, getting out there into the world. And they were very popular here in San Francisco. And I just thought, how about hybridizing TED Talks and a project in Haiti, doing a speaker series in Haiti that's akin to TED Talks, except instead of doing the presentations and lectures in you know, conference halls and auditoriums with people dressed up in suits and in a formal procedure kind of way. Why don't we do it in the raw wreckage of the earthquake out there um, with only Haitians talking about the work that they were doing for the recovery process? Because what seemed so lame to me was that every other government and all these other newspapers tried to tell the story of what Haiti needed to do to recover. That's pretty ignorant to approach it that way without any context for the history of the country. And obviously, I'm not a Haitian studies scholar, but I did want to take this structure of a speaker series because I'd been to London and a, an experienced speaker's corner in Hyde Park there, and I just kind of wanted to transfer that idea over to Haiti and see how Haitians responded to that opportunity. And what was the reaction of Haitians and then people the world over? I think, I mean, I wish that it would have gone more of a response internationally. I know that, you know, in French-speaking countries, some of the speeches are still taught and the DVDs are incorporated into seminars. Um, in Haiti, specifically, 
it seemed like a pretty uplifting experience for people to be watching these speeches. You've been at this for, I guess, about 10 years in documentaries. What advice would you give to emerging filmmakers, people who either want to study documentary filmmaking or maybe they want to get their first project launched and they're curious about fundraising, I guess from the process standpoint and also from the funding standpoint, what advice would you give to people? First and foremost, make the film that no one else wants to make. Be as brash as you can be and come up with a subject that no one would in their right mind think about making. And a, a film that just is so out there that it's singularly yours. You are the one who has to make it. And I'd say secondly, you're not going to make a lot of money doing documentary films. So if you're in it for money, you might want to consider a different film avenue or take on a paid work, work for a production company. But if you want to be completely independent, you've got to accept the fact that a lot of the time you're going to be relatively broke. And that's exciting to me. I mean, it is, it's, it's a daring adventure, as Helen Keller might say. Scott, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay, that was the conversation with Scott Kirschenbaum. Scott, thank you so much for joining the show and sharing so much of your story. Wishing you tons of success with Of Woman Born. And if you guys want to learn more about Scott's films, you can check out ofwomanbornfilm.com or yourelookingatme.com for his Alzheimer's documentary. Special thanks to our sponsor, General Assembly. Check out ga.co. Use the offer code MAKINGWAYS at checkout, and you'll get 15% off any class or workshop. Thanks so much to you, our listeners. I'm hearing from more and more of you guys every week, and I love it. You can at message us on Twitter at making underscore ways and throw suggestions and ideas and questions out to us, and uh, I look forward to reading them. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim in the mix, too. And every week you can check out original illustrations and articles and listen to our episodes on our website, makingways.co. And you'll find a link to our Patreon page where you can lend support to the show there, or you can head over to iTunes and leave a review. If you're going to be in the San Francisco or Bay Area this month in June, be sure to check out Making Ways at San Francisco Design Week. Go to sfdesignweek.org. We're doing a live interview with Eric from Friends of Type. It's going to be a blast. And we're doing it down at Butcher Shop, a fantastic agency here in San Francisco. And also, if you feel like learning how to launch your own podcast or maybe you're working on your company's podcast, I'm teaching a workshop at General Assembly later this month. Go to ga.co backslash sf and you can check out my course on launching a successful podcast. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.